Hi, welcome to Meet Me at the Movies. I am Noel T. Manning II. Really appreciate you guys spending time with us right here. However you decide to find us, whether that's uh, through TV, through the broadcast, uh, C19 uh, TV, we appreciate it. If you're uh, watching the video stream of that through C19.TV, uh, that's also appreciated. And if you're listening to the radio version of the podcast through WGWG or WGWG.org, thank you as well. Uh, as you know, if you are... Uh, familiar with this show, if you are uh, not a first-time viewer or listener, uh, you know that we cover so many different things, everything from reviewing films to looking at hot topics to having filmmakers. And really happy today to, uh, for this part of the show to have filmmaker uh, Justin McConnell um, is the uh, director uh, for The Clapboard Jungle and a few other things as well. Uh, but The Clapboard Jungle is, is honestly a... Uh, a journey of independent filmmaking, and uh, I tell you, man, some of the people you got a chance to interview—not just yourself, but wow. some of the others—wow! Uh, so, so Justin, welcome to the show. Hey, nice to be on the show. <laughs> so, Justin, um, give us just a snapshot background on your love of film and how you got into it. Mm -hmm. we, we talked before we we went on the air. Don't want to get into too much of it because your documentary covers quite a bit of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I briefly sort of introduced my background, but I, I kind of want to preface by saying that, you know, um, I'm, I'm like one of thousands of filmmakers out there, uh, and I do have a body of work behind me, but um, I'm not somebody that would be considered particularly well-known or anything like that. Um, and part of the documentary, Clapboard Jungle, that we made is kind of about that. It's about how does somebody who is on the fringes of the, the system break in? Um, so a little bit of background, I guess, about myself. Uh, I probably started to want to make movies around the age of 15. Um, I was doing like documentaries for classes and, uh, and making short films. I made a feature film in high school, um, with, with like a handy cam. And, uh, and then from then I moved to Toronto because I grew up in a really small town. Um, and I just started trying to break into the, the industry however I could. And, uh, that involved music videos and working for commercial and trailer houses and making TV spots for people and just whatever I could do. I started up a post-production company that gradually has grown and grown and grown over the years. And that's how I keep food on, on the table. And then in all that time, I've been making feature films and short films on very, very low budgets. Uh, you know, starting with things like working class rock star and the collapsed, uh, and skull world, which were, you know, all pretty much out of my own pocket. Um, and into this film we're talking about now, Clapboard Jungle, um, and then a feature called, or a, another feature called Broken Mile, and then a feature called Life Changer that came out uh, in 2019 last year and did pretty well. It sold to like Netflix and Showtime and Sky Movies in the UK, and it's, it's all over the world at this point. Um, did all right if compared to my past work. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at. I just, I try and do everything I can in the film industry to stay active and, um, you know, producing things and helping other people produce things and helping movies be seen. Cause I'm a, I'm a programmer too at Toronto after dark film festival and my own short film festival, little terrors. So I just, yeah, I do whatever I can. Well, the uh, clapboard jungle, I think is uh, pretty fascinating on, on several different levels. Uh, one, you, the amount of interviews you had. Wow. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, and it was just across the board. So many people, uh, and filmmakers willing to give you their time, mm -hmm. um, willing to give you tips <laughs> about the, the craft uh, and the art and the science and the business side. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's, it seems like pretty much any question you wanted to ask, there was someone willing to touch on some aspect of filmmaking. 
Yeah, I mean, to the, some of that was a numbers game because I, I started shooting this in 2014. And the way I shot it, I mostly paid for it all out of my own pocket um, gradually, like, like it was a hobby almost. So I would go to a festival or a market or, a, you know, a fan convention or um, what, whatever, wherever I was going in my travels. There's usually other filmmakers traveling to these things, too, uh, at varying degrees of levels in the industry because, you know, people get lifetime achievement awards or whatever. And it was just I, I would through contacts or through their managers or directly through social media, I would just reach out and say, listen, I'm doing this project. Would you sit down with me for half an hour or 20 minutes? Uh, it's the same as you're doing to me right now, pretty much. And over a four or five year period, I collected about 120 interviews, uh, 350 hours of raw footage, roughly. And we have this feature film that's doing, you know, doing Fantasia and Fright Fest and all these other festivals, but that's one element. And there's also an eight episode educational series that uh, is not about my story, but it's, it's to get way more of that information out, every episode being a topic. It's like a film school in a box. Because what, what I set out to do with this was to make something that exists, that I wish existed when I was starting out, to help sort of guide younger filmmakers in, in the direction of where the business is now and not the one they dreamed it was when they, they were a kid, because they're two different things. I mean, it would be difficult to touch on every aspect in one feature film or, or one TV series or, you know, even with all the extended content we're going to do, even with everybody I talk to, it's, it's a never ending learning experience. And there is no, the expression, there's more than one way to skin a cat, uh, applies heavily to the film industry. Um, my experience is going to be different than somebody else's experience is going to be different than somebody else's experience. And a lot of it also has to do with like where you're born and who your parents are. And, uh, and, and just your access to certain things in the industry, because the, that who you know thing is true. You can have a, 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 a career, you can work your way in there, you can get noticed, you can make something really great, but people's trajectories are at different speeds. So really what, the, what all I'm able really to display is everyone else's experiences and then my own in a more personal way. And that's kind of what the, the documentary is. It's not just a how-to guide, it's also sort of like a, how to stay sane guide in a way <laughs> it's yeah. uh it's emotional it's meant to be um not just about being a filmmaker but trying to survive as an artist when you've got like imposter syndrome and layers of depression and failure you've got to come across and you've got to keep taking more and more and more kicks at the can until you you know you have something that works and uh it's really about trying to survive mentally as well as survive um like to have the basic knowledge in the in the, in the system of how you would actually make that work. Well, what I really appreciated about the Clapboard Jungle was just that, that it was a personal journey of, of you. So we, we, I think we, we honestly got a good, a good snapshot of, of who Justin McConnell is um, through this. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I, so I love that personal journey. It wasn't just, okay, let me interview mm -hmm. others who are doing this and others who have done it. It was you telling your story as well, and, and the way that that was weaved into the larger piece, I think um, gave a, a bit of humanity to it. Um, mm -hmm. Not that there's not humanity with, with the other filmmakers, but, but I think it gave it this, this thread that, uh, as a viewer, I, I kept wanting to go back to you. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely, I set out at the beginning and I knew a few things first of all. One of them was the main film. It couldn't just be for people who were going to put it on in the background and do something else. It, I wanted it to have an arc and a story. And um, I didn't really have money to follow anyone else. So I figured if I'm going to turn the camera on myself, I should have a good skeleton. But I definitely didn't want it to be a vanity piece. And I definitely didn't want it to be 
like uh, something propping me up as somebody I'm not. So I, early on, I surrounded myself with a team, my co-producer, Daryl Shaw, uh, eventually, my editor, Kevin Burke, came on. Uh, we had Ellie Chappelle and Chris Alexander, the ex-Fangoria editor, was on board as a producer. Um, and, and you know, the Bomi, twin, Bomi sisters, or siblings, uh, I didn't want it to turn into this, you know, the Justin McConnell Truman Show kind of thing. I wanted it to be, here's how my experience might reflect in a larger sense to every, everyone else's experience um, to a varying degree. And then here's the outside opinions on what I'm either doing right or wrong. And just have that that art kind of carry through the production of an entire film or several films. So, how long did it take you to uh, to get to that final cut? Because you talked about the the tons of uh, of interviews, yeah. um, the years of of working toward this. You know, talk mm -hmm. about from that development concept of okay, yeah, I want to do this to where we are now. I think we started uh, we started putting it together uh, initially, assembling it in late 2018 uh and i we had the locked picture first thing this year i think was it was around it was around the first thing the beginning of this year was when I, I had picture locked um yeah i finished it just before COVID hit so uh between kevin and i and daryl and the you know our, our sound engineer and everybody it was probably just around a year and a year and three months or something like that to, to put the post together of just the feature and now we're doing the series which is even longer but it's also a little less disciplined in that it's mostly talking heads and clips from behind the scenes stuff. So it's not, it's not as difficult because you're not massaging a story out of it so much. You're, you're massaging a message and it, it's <laughs> like a Chomsky thing. It, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's just a different editing process. It's a little quicker. Um, it's a little less razor analyzing every single cut kind of thing. Gotcha. So uh, of the interviews that you were able to, to get uh, for this, there were, there were several that were, were known faces uh, yeah. that you were, you've had connected to other projects, but there were some others too that, uh, some Oscar winners that, that pretty much anybody who's uh, anybody would- You mean uh, like uh, Guillermo del Toro is what you're yeah, talking about. Exactly. Yeah, no. that, was, um, that was just really good luck at the end of the day. Uh, so Chris Alexander had hired me on, well, first of all, I. George Romero lives in Toronto. George Romero, uh, I, had, I had set up an interview with through Chris Alexander because Chris knows George through the Fangoria days and stuff like that. So I thank him for that. So I'd shot that interview and then a job came up for Aero Video for the George Romero box set um, where there'd be an hour long interview set up between Gamble del Toro and George Romero. So I got hired to shoot that. Uh, and edit it. And on that same day that we shot that, uh, we managed to convince Guillermo, I, I think just a few, a few days before that through email through his assistance, we managed to convince him to sit down for an interview with us once we were done shooting that day. So we were in George Romero's house or his home shooting a Guillermo del Toro interview. Uh, yeah, it was a pretty surreal moment. Wow. To say the least. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, to get both of those legends. Yeah. Uh, and they're both legends. But they're, you know, they're really nice. They're just Everybody I met who sat, who I sat down with, and even some of the people who turned me down, you know, they're all human beings. They're all actually really just nice people. And also I find when filmmakers get older, they start putting the teacher brain on. And, and like Romero, for example, um, he, he loved to talk and he loved to have conversations. But I think one of my mem best memories of that and from the same day was like after it was all done, we, you know, they ordered us food and we sat and we just talked about movies for like two or three hours. And it's not, it's, they just, you know, they want company, they want friends. You're not, it's not an agenda driven thing. And I think that's, 
I approached the whole documentary that way. It was like you, you know, you, you, you treat everybody like, you know, you, you want to know about them as a person and not necessarily know about them as you, you don't be a fanboy. I think right. is, is the way you, you approach these interviews and uh, it, it, it definitely paid off. I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 it without a doubt, it, it paid off. And um, you, you probably <laughs> had to leave some things on the cutting room floor, oh, yeah. so to speak. I'll show up though in other <laughs> media. Yeah. Well, are there, are there things that you wish had made it into this piece or are um, those, are those showing up, like you said, other places? I mean, there's definitely little moments that I personally like would like there for flavor, but in terms of pacing and in terms of, they, they just kind of drag the, it's great information for the people who would be succinctly interested in that information, but it's not broad enough information that uh, it's going to work for everybody and it just dragged the pacing down. But it's the kind of information that'll end up in the series and it'll end up in the, in, uh, you know, the extended educational modules and like all the stuff that we're planning to be rolled out over the next year or so. Um, it, the, believe me, there is, you're not going to be spoiled for information from this. There's, there's so much that that's still left to show that it's just, uh, yeah, I'm not too worried about something not being in that main feature because there's so much more coming. I think that's the amazing thing about being able to do something like this is the, the richness mm -hmm. of the material that you have to pull from and then realizing, okay, I can use this elsewhere yep. uh, to provide benefit down the road uh, for, for mm -hmm. others, uh, for others as well. What is the best lesson that you gained from this experience, either personally or professionally, or, or maybe both? Well, I mean, it's an overall lesson through my career, really. Uh, and it's just that, Avi says it, Avi Fettergreen says it in the doc, you got to learn to roll with some punches. And, and I know that seems obvious, but there's, there's a, ha a habit people get into sometimes when they've been working on something for a long, long, long time and it doesn't come together the, the way they wanted to, or it comes together in a way that they didn't really anticipate or expect, but it still comes together. It's just not, it doesn't fit the thing in your mind when you first started out uh, to get disappointed or disheartened or discouraged. Um, if your path doesn't go directly as you envisioned it, because you're sort of raised, I think a lot of Western society is raised to believe in a dream and you go for your dreams and it's a straight line but the line is actually more curved and you take side trips and you, you know, you, you go down hills and you go, you know, <laughs> yes. it's, it's, it's a, it's a roller coaster getting there. And so I think the most important thing to learn is like, if something doesn't work for you, that's not a sign to give up. That's a sign to figure out what didn't work and improve next time and just keep going. And uh, you can, you know, you can be in a situation where you're, you know, your back's against the wall and you maybe not don't get anything done for years that can happen. But in your heart, if you want to make movies, you, you've just got to, you, you can't, you can never say, Goonies never say die. You know, you can't stop. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's correct. Goonies never say die. That's perfect, man. Absolutely perfect. So, so where can people follow you and follow your work? Um, well, I'm, I'm an open book on social media. Uh, I have uh, my company website, unstableground.net. You can look me up on IMDb to see all the past work I've done. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Um, it's, it's not, it's not hard to find me. Um, yeah, I, I would even hazard to say that, uh, I made a couple films in my home. So if people really, really wanted to find me, uh, I should put new locks on the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, any other thoughts or, uh, comments that you want to make sure that you share with, uh, with our viewers and our listeners about, uh, the I mean, jungle or your work? 
Well, I, I would just say that like, no matter what, um, and this is something I've learned the hard way than the long way is, uh, especially in the era of the internet and especially it, when there's so much competition for, um, for people's eyeballs and, uh, and, and to, to just even get people to watch your work. Um, and these platforms are producing stuff at high, high production quality at all times. When it comes, if you're an indie filmmaker and you're making, you're making independent film, you got to be prepared for a not insignificant amount of the audience to not like the work you do. And if that's the case, uh, you can't take that too personally. And by the same token, all the people giving you rave reviews, you can't take that too personally either. You kind of have to just accept the fact that the work you do is not going to be for everybody and take the little seeds of truth out of all criticism, good or bad, and try and just move forward, learning your lessons and uh, making better work down the line. Um, you, you know, the, the, you let the world judge what you made. You just make the stuff that means something to you. Right, right. Well, um, and, and that, one more question just came up as we were, as we were talking and mm -hmm. uh, you were talking about COVID-19 earlier in the pandemic and yeah. the impact that's made on, on film festivals, so many of them having to go virtual. Mm -hmm. What has that uh, done for the independent filmmaker? Um, how has that changed the way that you are having to work now? Has it allowed you to be more creative behind the scenes? Mm. Uh, I'd like to just hear some thoughts on that. Well, there isn't much behind the scenes right now uh, to, to be had. There are productions happening in certain areas of the world that have not, uh, not particularly high infection rates. LA does have some stuff shooting. My friend Adam Mason's directing a movie called Songbird right now that Michael Day is producing with him. And he's, he's he just rapped like, three days ago or something like that. They're doing second unit this week. Um, these productions are happening, but the cost to test people multiple times a week to have uh, PPE and all kinds of um, safety precautions uh, is really high. And on a moral level to me personally right now, it's one thing to spend all that and, and say, everybody's safe. We've taken every precaution. On a moral level, if somebody gets sick and dies on a film set, I don't mind waiting. Is what is what I'm trying to say is yeah. that I I would all every precaution in the world you could still the virus can still get in, um, like the summer camp, you know that was announced last week and stuff like that. They took every precaution, um, apparently. But you know, as kids, film sets are like summer camps in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're you're working in close quarters, uh, and there are ways. People have figured out how to make it work technically, but it's only a matter of time before for one of these productions that are making it work have a, a real problem. And, and with insurance the way it is right now, uh, you can't get COVID coverage. So you can buy an insurance coverage policy and go into production, but if, if somebody dies or gets incredibly sick, your production's getting sued to the end of the earth, basically. So it's, it's for production right now, it's, it's really rough. We actually had a project we were supposed to go to camera with, we would have been wrapped by now if all things had gone according to plan, shooting in Australia. Right. Uh, it's actually talked about in the documentary. Um, we were in casting when COVID hit at first and uh, we just, it's just stalled. It's just, it's like, we, we have to wait now, um, which is, you know, it's challenging. We, we have book rights, option rights on that one that we, that are going to expire. And then we, it's like, we have to renew them and we have to renew them. The business is like that, but now yeah. it's even, even riskier um, with, but with the film festival question, um, there are definitely people who aren't playing these virtual festivals because you burn your market a little bit when you do that. Like if it's a smaller festival, but it's giving a smaller regional festival in the U S but it's giving the film access to, you know, the entire country can watch it unlimited times. You've just taken a section of your market share and thrown it in the trash. 
uh, even if the festival has a, a kind of like a rev share with the ticket sales and stuff like that. So, I, I mean, we're playing Fantasia and Fright Fest and these other festivals virtually, but they're big enough and mean enough on the press level that uh, it's worth it to get the word out through a festival like that. Um, some of the regional ones don't work for every film. It really depends on the movie you're trying to sell. Uh, I don't think they're going to be a permanent thing. I think festivals will come back eventually, uh, but for the time being, you know, your movies can't sit on the shelf forever. Uh, so there, you have to take, you have to evaluate each festival as it comes and decide whether you're actually going to benefit from playing it virtually because there's a risk of piracy and there's, and if that happens, you're also kind of screwed mm -hmm. if it's too early. Um, it, it, and it, there's a risk that buyers won't want it. If you, if you burn your market in a certain territory, like in the United States, if you play a festival where they let 50,000 people watch it across the United States and you're a small indie film, that makes it harder for a, for a buyer, for a distributor to want it. So wow. you just got to be really careful and yeah. like do your research and make sure it's a festival worth playing as, as much as I hate to say that because I yeah. like Toronto After Dark, we canceled it this year. We're just, we pushed it to ne next year because we don't see an upside really. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, I was interviewing a, uh, a songwriter, a Grammy award-winning songwriter uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about the impact of the coronavirus on his life from a performer has completely changed. Oh, yeah. But he said from the songwriting side of it or that creative side of building that content, mm -hmm. He said it has just been amazing how much he's been able to do from that standpoint. There is, there is a bit of that too. Um, I like a good example is I, I, I just, I wanted to experiment. So I shot an isolation short film at the beginning of July where I tasked myself to be everything, to do every job. Cause I live here alone. So I acted, I wrote the score, I did everything. And it's already been accepted into some festivals and it's doing like, it's, wow. I think it turned out pretty good, but it was just more like a creative experiment. It wasn't much more than that. Um, I, you know, I've been, I'm, I'm technically I'm writing an album right now too, because I just wanted to, you know, I, I used to make electronic music in the early 2000s. I was in a metal band for two years. I, I haven't really played music for over a decade and now I've got a bit of downtime. Why not? What's, what's, what's standing in the way of me, you know, ha having a little bit of sanity by writing some yeah. music. Um, yeah. why not? Yeah, so yeah, definitely. And you know, I'm, I've been writing a new script and to add to my drawer of scripts, but it's still societal collapse is a difficult thing to find inspiration from if that makes sense yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you there's a, a bigger picture out there going okay how what is this going to mean for the next five years of my career how valuable will, will the things i make actually be um right. that sort of stands in the way of of that creativity to some degree um i think at least initially when this first started going down it was it was very much like okay, so the sky's falling, are films gonna matter? <laughs> but yeah. we'll see, we'll see what, how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. Justin McConnell, our guest right here on uh, Meet Me at the Movies. Um, and uh, he is the director for the Clapboard Jungle uh, documentary that you can see sometime. So uh, check sometime that out. But, yeah. uh, but keep an eye on those festivals, on Fantasia and Night Visions and Fright Fest. And if you're in those areas, you can definitely watch it very soon. Hey, I appreciate your time. Really, uh, thanks so much. And uh, I wish you a tremendous success on this and future projects as well. For all those that are much. tuning in, you can always email us info at c19.tv and uh, follow us through wgwg.org and also c19.tv as well. Until next time, that's a wrap.